Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello and welcome to this Institute for Government event on how the UK can lead on green finance. Uh, my name is Tom Sass. I'm an associate director here at IFG and I lead our work on net zero. So we're really delighted to be back hosting events, hybrid events in, in the building uh, with a small audience here and, and lots of you watching online. And we're really pleased to be partnering with Accenture to hold this event. Um, so COP26 already feels much longer ago than four months. Hard to believe, really. We've sort of had this rolling set of crises. It means that there perhaps hasn't been as much time to sort of reflect and take stock on that big conference as, as we might have imagined there would be. Um, but building on that COP agenda, and in particular, sort of taking some of those ambitions and commitments and sort of turning them into tangible action, uh, remains as urgent as ever. And I think no area is that more true than in, in, in the area of green finance. Um, so COP26, as all of you will know, was sort of billed as the finance COP. We had sort of bankers and financiers there in force as never before. Um, and there was a big focus on both sort of how to green finance, so this transition in the city um, and the way sort of companies and, and, uh, are reporting, and also how to finance green and sort of getting the scale of investment towards green projects that we need. Um, so there was lots of big initiatives that, that you all will be familiar with, companies committing to work towards net zero, uh, commitments on reporting and disclosure. Uh, ple pledges on how to sort of scale some of that private investment and also a really interesting set of conversations growing around climate risk and resilience uh, in the fin finance sector. Um, the UK already had a, a leadership position in this area. You know, London was clearly a, a leading financial centre um, uh, and had set out the ambition, ambition to be the world's first net zero aligned financial centre. Uh, and the UK Treasury had already, just before the COP, published a, a green finance Roadmap, and it's due to update that, that strategy at the end of this year. Um, so all of that makes this a great moment, really, to, to take stock um, and ask what the UK, and, and, and that includes governments, banks, regulators, the rest of the industry, uh, needs to do to keep sort of pushing at the forefront of this green finance agenda. Um, I've got a really great panel joining me to do that. So uh, on my far left, Anthony Brown is MP for South Cambridgeshire and a member of the Treasury Select Committee, as well as being chair of the APPG on Environment. Uh, Anthony was formerly a business journalist and then uh, <clears throat> director of Policy Exchange. Um, he worked for Boris Johnson as London mayor and then served for five years as the CEO of the British Bankers Association. Uh, next to Anthony is Sarah Breeden. Uh, she's Executive Director for Financial Stability Strategy at the Bank of England uh, and a member of the Bank's Financial Policy Committee. And she leads the Bank's work on climate change, both domestically and internationally. Uh, and previously, she held a number of senior posts at the Bank, including working on prudential regulation. Maria Lombardo, uh, on my right, is Head of ESG Advisory Sustainable Finance at Standard Chartered Bank. Uh, she's got more than 25 years' experience in investment banking and is an advisor to various sustainable finance initiatives. And lastly, but not least, uh, Kwang Yiwei is Director of Risk and Regulatory Strategy at Accenture. Uh, she advises businesses and governments on regulation and competition and is a member of the International Regulatory Strategy Group, an advisory body to the City of London. So a quick bit of housekeeping, how this is going to work. 
Uh, I'm going to ask some initial questions of my panel and have a bit of a discussion for about 30 minutes. Uh, and then we're going to have about half an hour for questions from you in the audience, both in the room uh, and at home. Um, those watching online can start submitting your questions now. Uh, and you know the drill. Please do look at the other questions that have been submitted and upvote uh, those. As usual, we'll be tweeting uh, using the hashtag IFGNetZero. So join, do join the conversation there as well. So, without further ado, Anthony, um, could you set the scene for us a bit? Where do you think the UK is on green finance post-COP26? What progress has been made? And what do you think from Parliament, uh, what do you see as the big challenges ahead? Well, thank you, Tom, and thank you for, well done for putting on this uh, important uh, event. So I'm just going to say one thing about why uh, green finance to start with, uh, and that is because climate change is the biggest market failure in history, uh, and it re- clearly requires global government intervention to uh, tackle it. But it would be far easier to do that if we go with the flow of finance rather than against the flow of international finance. And, it's, and the whole aim of green finance is to make sure that the investment decisions uh, are aligned with reaching uh, net zero. Uh, and uh, a huge amount of work needs to go in to do that and make that actually happens. And I just want one example of something that uh, I, I was involved with recently on the uh, funding of nuclear power. The government wants new nuclear power. The, it previously, the, its plans for new nuclear power stations had been um, kiboshed by the financing arrangements. And in fact, the, the, the um, participants are pulled out. And so we just passed this new uh, bill that I was uh, uh, on the committee for the Nuclear Financing Act now mm. uh, to work out new ways with the regulated asset-based model for funding finance. And, and the whole point of that was just to make sure that the money, the uh, private sector money, could go into financing nuclear net zero industry. And that shows the fact that we're passing legislation for a particular financing model for a particular uh, technology shows how important that financing is. Because governments, obviously, they're going to contribute money themselves, but they need the private sector to do it as well. And the Climate Change Commission it estimates uh, that currently we're in the UK, we're spending about £10 million a year on net zero technologies. Uh, That needs to rise, according to them, to £30 billion a year by 2030. And clearly we need uh, the um, private industry to get behind that as well. So what are we doing? I mean, so green finance is one of those things. When people first started talking about it, I have to admit, I was a bit sceptical about it in the sense that it was sort of like all happy clappy. You know? <laughs> and actually finance is incredibly hard-headed. And it's, there's a very different conversation. Uh, when I speak to environment groups a lot about finance, uh, you know, they get the general gist of it, obviously. But you then speak to actual bankers, and we've got some here, uh, about finance. And they've got a very, very different uh, perspective, not in terms of the ultimate objective, but just how it can work and, and not work. And so the uh, the Treasury has obviously started doing work work on this for a number of years. It's getting it is a work in progress. It's getting clearer what they're trying to do. Uh, the government in 2019 pu- published its uh, green finance strategy, which, as you mentioned, is going to be updated uh, later this year. It's due to be updated later this year. Uh, and there were three parts to that. One was uh, uh, greening finance. The second was financing green, and the third uh, was championing the UK. And, and the UK is in a unique position, as you mentioned, to deal with this. We're a global financial centre already. And there are clearly commercial advantages to being fast, first movers in, in, a, uh, in an environment like this. Um, in terms of uh, greening finance, so th- this is, uh, again, some of the things you touched on. This is really about, uh, primarily about disclosure. So there's the, mm-hmm. the uh, uh, TCFD uh, task force on climate-related financial disclosures, which the UK has now mandated, uh, the first major economy to mandate that. So all the 
companies within the remit have to make those disclosures, and I think the Bank of England is doing it as well, I believe. Uh, and I think that, that it was Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of England, was obviously the driving force behind that. Uh, at COP26, the government said, uh, set out the objective for the UK to be the first global financial centre that's uh, aligned with net zero. Uh, it's a good ambition to have. Why not? Uh, there's a transition for economies, so for companies rather. So the, the key thing here, and this is quite an important uh, thing to recognise. We're not talking about uh, closing down BP or gas companies or whatever. It's about helping companies uh, finance the new transition to net zero, their new sort of business models. But they do need to have uh, uh, plans to get to net zero. And so the government is you know, in the process of mandating that uh, for companies. And there was a, uh, at COP26, it announced a transition plan mm. task force for that. And I should say, it's very important to do a lot of these measures. We can do stuff nationally, obviously, and we should do that anyway. But it's very important to use what levers we have to do things globally as well, because this is a global problem. Uh, and the more uh, aligned standards are globally, the easier it's going to be for businesses, and certainly international businesses, to comply with it. What you really don't want is a highly fragmented system where you've got one type of disclosure and rules in, in one jurisdiction, another one in, in another jurisdiction, which may compete with each other or contradict each other. And that's so it's so pushing these global standards is very, uh, very important. Um, and then the, the government, uh, and again, Mark Carney was uh, heavily involved with this, so it set up the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, uh, COP26 mm-hmm. being held in Glasgow. Uh, and that that's, uh, covers 450 firms from 25 different countries and with total assets of $130 trillion, so pretty significant. Uh, and they have all sort of committed themselves to uh, greening finance and getting to, uh, getting to net zero. Um, and then there were various other measures, like over 20 countries, including the UK, uh, committed to stop funding unabated uh, fossil fuel uh, companies by uh, this year. Uh, so absolutely carry on funding them, but they've got to have a transition plan for getting out there and, and abate it. So the challenge, your last question was the challenges. So the, the big challenge is actually embedding all this and getting global mm-hmm. agreements on it. And actually, the devil is in the detail. I won't talk about the detail, <laughs> partly because I don't know about it, but partly because I know everyone <laughs> everyone here knows about it far, far more. I mean, so for example, the um, we're... we're uh, setting up the, uh, the the taxonomy, as it's called, for green finance, which is defining exactly which activity counts as green and not green, and so on. And that's the uh, you know an incredibly difficult thing to do on a scientific basis, and it should be scientific, obviously. But getting a, a agreement on that um, and getting uh, getting all countries to agree to it—that's you know they might sign up to something at COP26, but as we know, it's. You know, uh, getting agreements is fine. It's the implementation that actually matters, and it's the implementation that will make the difference in, in terms of getting to net zero. So actually following all that through, and actually I had a, um, I chaired an event with Alok Sharma um, last week, who's still president of COP26 until uh, Egypt takes over uh, in November, and it is all about, you know, he's... His work now is about making sure uh, countries, and indeed companies, but countries deliver what they said they would deliver and put put the structures in place to make sure that they Mm. do deliver, uh, you know, in the meantime and don't just sort of arrive next year and say... Sorry. Um, So those are the main challenges. And finally, you asked about Parliament. I mean, the... the, uh, I, one of the things that struck me, as somebody who's always been interested in environmental issues, as a journalist, I was actually environmental editor of the Observer newspaper in the Times. I've got a 
career track record of being interested in environmental issues, uh, the, uh, just how committed parliamentarians are, with very few exceptions, to getting to net zero. And it really is... I, I chair the all-party parliamentary group on the environment, and there really is a commitment across uh, Parliament to getting to net zero. Um, not everyone, including myself, understands the detail of like all green finance, etc., but there's, there's no sort of political uh, objection to it whatsoever. Um, and so I just... The, it, that makes it a lot easier for the government to be uh, to move forwards with confidence without having to sort of watch its back and say, oh, well, Parliament will reject something or not, because mm-hmm. it, it won't. We've got mm-hmm. huge support for it. Brilliant. Thank you, Anthony. That's a fantastic survey and, and sort of primer on, on what the government has been doing um, and, and sort of introducing us to some of those sort of key things in, in strategy. Just to pick up on one point there around the interest in Parliament. So your committee wrote a really good report sort of reviewing some of the progress so far. Will you be coming back to look at this again sort of later in the year? Do you think there's sort of interest in green finance as a sort of subset of the net zero? Well, absolutely. And we had done, uh, we'd actually had an ongoing inquiry for a while on green finance. And yes, we published this report earlier, the year, earlier in the year and with a series of recommendations. And it's definitely something we'll keep an eye on going forwards because it's not, this is a huge transition. Uh, it's, you know, one of the biggest changes uh, in the financial system. And once we bed it in, it will become business as usual and we won't think about it again. But that, that process is enormous. So it's the Treasury Select I'm sure we'll keep an eye on it, but we don't. We're not at the moment planning another report just now. But I'm sure we'll. Brilliant. No, again. IFG is always recommended active scrutiny uh, <laughs> for, for good policy making. So I just thought I'd get that in. Um, Sarah, if I could turn to you, um, what are the, the bank's priorities for sort of helping this this green finance transition? And, and actually, I want to bring you in on this point of, you know, we talk a lot about opportunities and all, all of it, but, but actually, there's a real challenge as well in ensuring this sort of resilience question and and how to build resilience to physical risks in particular. So our aim, our priority as it comes to climate change is to ensure that individual banks and insurers and the system as a whole is resilient to the risks from climate change. Those are the physical risks that you mentioned and the transition risks as we move from our current pathway to one that's consistent with net zero. But a really important part of that, as Anthony said, is ensuring that the financial system is playing its part in financing the transition as well. So it's twofold, resilience and playing a part in uh, the transition. That all starts with building an awareness of the risks and that is our foundational, our, our key role here. So back in 2019, we set out expectations for the banks and the insurers that we regulate to embed the risks from climate change in how they go about running their business. So they need to have a strategy for it. They need to embed it in their governance. They need to embed it in their risk management. Uh, they need to disclose uh, their risks from it. And then in in addition, what we've done is do a climate biennial exploratory scenario, which aims to see under different states of the world, what might these future risks look like. And as soon as you've identified the risks, you can then start managing them. So that's the foundational uh, piece that we've been focused on. Uh, It, of course, relates to the broader government agenda on disclosure. Financial institutions are financing their their households and the businesses that they uh, transact with, so they need to understand the risks that 
those uh, 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 participants have. And that's where reporting and disclosure is a key part. So our aim now is to shift from uh, building awareness of the risks to ensuring firms are embedding them. And that was a, a pivot that we made at the end of 21, where we said, in addition to helping you understand these risks, we have various fora, the Climate Financial Risk Forum, where we try and share uh, best practice about how to do this. Uh, in addition to enabling you to do that, we are embedding this in our supervision and we are going to be looking at how you are doing this practically and uh, having uh, stern conversations in the way one does as a regulator if one's expectations are, are not being met. I did want to come back to challenges because they are there are many. Uh, we are uncertain where we start. That's where the data and reporting piece comes in. And so for financial institutions to move forward their risk management, they need the right data from their uh, customers. So that's that's taking time, but it is uh, starting, but it remains a challenge. The second thing that is a challenge is that none of us know exactly what combination of physical risks and transition risks we're going to see. We could carry on on our emissions pathway. We could have an early and orderly transition to net zero. We could have a disorderly transition to net zero. And of course, that reflects the actions that we take today. Managing through that uncertainty is not easy. Uh, and that's why we've done the scenario exercise uh, that we uh, have done to try and help people identify what strategies are resilient to uh, that uh, future uncertainty. And then the final thing I mentioned, it comes back to the global, uh, global problem needs global solutions, is the UK can't solve this on its own. This is, there's a single carbon budget for the entire uh, 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 planet. And so what we need to do is work with our peers around the globe to ensure that what we're doing here in London is being done all around uh, the world. There's some really good news there. We're a part of an international network that was established uh, a lot, lot of work to do. That's brilliant. I just wanted to um, ask you something about that point around uncertainty, because I think it's such an interesting challenge, this idea of try what we can tell with the kind of current data and modelling abilities that we have. And actually, one of the most interesting things reflecting just on the last four to five months at the COP, there was a lot of conversation around how actually it's very risky for investors to have a lot of oil and gas mm -hmm. sort of stocks on their, on their balance sheets, because those could be, you know, sort of, we, we don't know what the future appetite is going to be around those. And then now we're in this position where we're now talking about granting new licenses, you know. That's right. So it's such an uncertain, you know, map that we're even on those, that sort of short time frame of a few months. So how do you kind of deal with that in that work that you're undertaking and with lots of central banks around the world? So the key is to recognise yeah. the uncertainty, recognise that the pace of the transition will ultimately be determined by governments 
through climate policy and recognising that as a financial institution, you need to understand what that government policy landscape looks like and you need to understand the uncertainties around it. Everybody is clear on the destination, net zero by 2050, but there are many different pathways to get there. Some of those pathways are clear now. The uh, strategy for vehicles, for example, really clear. Some uh, strategies are not so clear and some will need adapting in the light of the geopolitical environment. The key is to embed an understanding of that in how you run your business and have that affect the decisions you take. I do want to emphasize one thing, though, uh, that that, uh, that recent events have highlighted. We've got time to do the transition, right? And, And the risks and the costs of that are lowest when we use that time in an orderly fashion rather than rushing to make quick decisions. And I think that goes a bit to Anthony's point about ensuring that the energy policy that the government has set out gets the finance that it needs. And that is a really important part of what financial institutions need to do, not just rushing to paper decarbonise, to play their part in delivering the energy that the economy needs. Such an important point. And I think one of the interesting lessons from COVID, actually, when we had this sort of climate and COVID reflection sort of discussion was actually we don't want to disorderly transition on climate. It's not good. Um, If I could, just before turning to Maria, just one more question. You mentioned the sort of the stick side of the equation with the regulators. I think that was also mentioned in in Anthony's report around um, the FCA and the Prudential Regulation Authority and, and, and whether they have sort of sufficient teeth to really start to drive this transition and drive this change in behaviour in businesses, because that's where we're sort of trying to move to. I mean, do you feel confident that the regulators have enough strength sort of so i i would say this but i do think we have uh those powers uh we have powers to uh set expectations we have powers to require remediation plans when those expectations are not being met we have got powers uh to identify individuals within firms who are the senior managers responsible for ensuring climate change is embedded uh, in how firms do their business. So I think we've got the toolkit that we need. Great. Okay. Um, Maria, um, so how is the banking sector approaching this transition to green finance? Oh, fantastic. So, um, so first of all, I just wanted to say that I'm, I work for Standard Chartered Bank, which is a UK bank, but we, we are global in, in, um, in all our activity and mostly our footprint is in... Uh, um, in, in Africa, Middle East, um, in Asia. Um, and so, uh, obviously, we, we see the transition, we see climate change as a, as a, global, um, um, as a global issue, as a global risk. And I just want to say, before I go into how do we do it uh, uh, as a practitioner, I, I just want to pick on, on what uh, Anthony and Sarah just said, and uh, two points mainly on uh, this balance that we need to find on uh, um, um, 
climate, physical risk, and transition, and also the importance of considering risk. Because I do think, and having done various CCFD uh, and, and, and obviously applying the physical risk, there is a, there is the physical risk impact is something that is coming a bit later, uh, the real impact on any activity, any corporate. And so there is uh, some sort of, uh, um, difficulties in, in, in calculating what does it mean, what, what is, what does it mean in terms of our financial impact? And it's coming, you know, after 2040, possibly 2050. At the same time, the transition risk is the one that is coming now. But I really appreciate what Sarah said, that we have time to do it. Because what we might risk is that this convergence is, um, impacting uh, all sectors, financial sector, uh, corporates at the same time, because all the policies that are creating the transition risk will be implementing all at once and as a, in a rush. And so this, to me, is, is a very important element. We all know about the inevitable policy response work that is really trying to face those things. And this is coming back again then on the risk side. Because I think it is very important, and we have experienced this with Standard Charter, to have a fantastic and well-equipped um, climate risk backbone. So that is something that some, somehow we have forgot about it, because when we, we started thinking about TSG, it was a risk element, but then it became mainstream, it became overwhelming all that we do. But then having a backbone of risk is what now allows us to really look in details on how to execute it. It's not just giving a, a transition plan, uh, ambitions, etc., but it's really looking how do we execute it. And so we do it in... Uh, um, uh, the, the, I think Standard Charter Bank has been one of the pioneers in incorporating sustainability. We have the ambition to be the most sustainable bank uh, in the world. And, uh, and this is really thanks to this backbone that we have, to the framework that we have created. Um, transition <coughs> means also having a strategy that um, is quite detailed, that identify uh, the, our goals, our metrics, um, and uh, we work mainly with the highest emitting sector. So it was very important for us to really identify the uh, priority uh, where to put the transition plans. And we started with the most um, emitting sector. So with, uh, with oil and gas, with uh, uh, power, uh, with metal and mining. And we set our target for those corporates. Um, and then we are going to publish um, in uh, the course of this year uh, the other nine sectors that we, we really focus on very specifically. But that means working together with those corporates because our plan uh, that we now uh, we need to report to the Bank of England, so we are greening ourselves, uh, our transition plan has certain targets, but these targets need to be the same of our clients. Mm -hmm. And our clients don't have the same target. Mm -hmm. So we have to create a structure around it to really partner in with our clients, with our corporate, with our oil and gas um, um, corporates operating mainly in countries that don't even have signed the Paris Agreement, if you like. Mm -hmm. So there, are, there is all this 
element of not just influencing, but really offering support on how do you do your transition? How do you incorporate it in your company? And ultimately, how do we match the action that we need to take to give you finance, or if I am an insurance company, to really ensure your risk, to uh, the quantification that you have is the same quantification that I have, mm. which, which is, uh, again, back to having a backbone of risk and on, on framework. So to, for us now is uh, really um, a time of uh, implementing what we have um, um, presented, and uh, and really it is a big investment. It is a big challenge, and we we have transition squad people who really work with companies to make sure that we go through the same transition or we we fill these gaps. And we have team like mine that might start from the very beginning of an ESG journey of a corporate to to make sure that when they when we are accessing to finance, we are all well equipped to do that, because we strongly believe that finance is going to be a sustainable finance, and eventually we are not going to talk about sustainable finance and finance. It's just one thing. That's brilliant, Maria. Thank you, and, and such an interesting insight into how banks are approaching this with the various uh, companies on, the, on, on their balance sheets. Um, got lots of questions coming in uh, on Slido already, so please do keep sending those in and, and voting on those. Um, Kwangi, if you can take us... I mean, you work with lots and lots of businesses um, in this space. You see a lot of the issues that they face. So can you sort of talk to us about, you know, picking up on some of what Maria said, what are the main issues they're having as they approach this transition and where do you see the sort of opportunities? Yeah, I'm actually, I'm also taking jams from all the other panelists. <laughs> so I think Anthony started by saying sustainable finance was a kind of the biggest market failure. But in the next decade, it is also the largest market opportunity. So, you know, globally, in order to be aligned to net zero, we require somewhere between 1.6 to 3.8 trillions of investment globally. And then in that, there's a very symbiotic relationship between finance and the rest of the sector. So you may say real economy, quote unquote. So, and I think in doing that, there's actually a lot of um, shared goals and common challenges or observations that we're seeing. In terms of the shared goals, what is that? Maria said it shouldn't be sustainable finance and finance is one thing. And it's the same. What good looks like is when ESG or sustainability is no longer vogue. It is business as usual or BAU. So, but to get there, I think firms across all sectors need probably three sort of fundamental blocks. The first one is essentially having the data and information that is useful and meaningful for decision making. And then the UK mandating TCFD is a great move. And then the second one is about having that clarity and the confidence in managing the uncertainty to what Sarah mentioned. And that is about knowing what is material, how to prioritize, what to prioritize when. And the third part is obviously having the, the ability and the horsepower to implement and then do it in a scalable and cost-effective manner, given all the other priorities. So if I'm thinking about challenges we're observing across industries, um, I think there are several. The first one is indeed about reporting and disclosure. It's great that investors are putting a lot more focus on ESG performance in kind of enhancing that appeal of the company. But then the issue is not all companies are public listed and have that reporting infrastructure. Smaller, medium-sized businesses still make up a good chunk of the UK economy and let alone other countries. So how do we make sure that not having the reporting infrastructure doesn't become like a hurdle to their appeal to investors is really key. 
And the second one, I think, is around that point, you know, Marie mentioned incentive counterparty of banks' balance sheet, you know, it might be oil and gas companies. When it comes to a retailer or a consumer goods, the supply chain is usually global and often in countries where the policy and regulatory maturity is not the same as the UK. So how do we have that visibility, that traceability, where that control is a second sort of challenge we're seeing? And the third one is around... There's still, at the moment, there's still a bit of a decoupling between value and values. So by that, I mean, so, you know, if we take financial services, a green asset is not necessarily a safer asset from a financial risk perspective. And for consumer good, an eco-label can usually have a price premium. And in this kind of inflation environment, is is tough. So the question is about, do we then have maybe even clearer roadmap, policy signal, maybe even a global carbon price to actually kind of um, make sure we all sort of value the environmental costs and benefits in our valuation, in our pricing more appropriately. So I think these are some of the common challenges or observations we're having. But I just wanted to finish on a slightly more positive note rather than just a whole lot of problem statement. Uh, I think to today's exam question, sort of how can the UK lead? I mean, I think from, you know, what UK can really lead is to become the go-to place or one-stop hub, one-stop shop for global companies across industry to raise capital here, to structure the you know, their business and operations here to get access to solutions, green tech or other tech solutions here. So it's about having that one-stop shop ecosystem that really makes the UK stand out. Um, so I think that's... I'll just leave on a slightly no, positive well, note. Thank you for that uh, clarion call of optimism at the end there and, and sort of what, the, what London and, and UK more broadly can sort of bring together on this agenda. And I think also really helpful actually to get a sense of, you know, we spend a lot of time talking around... Dis- uh, disclosure requirements and, you know, those being this really important stick that's coming down the track. But actually, the other side of that coin is the capability and the infrastructure that businesses have to, to comply with them. So I think that's a really important point. I'm going to open it up to questions from the room. If anyone in the room has a question now, you can put your hand up. Yes, I'll, I'll take a question there first, and then I'll also bring in some from online too. So if we take that question, we'll take one from Sam as well afterwards. Thank you very much. Um, Temi Afalabi from the Nichols Group, Director of um, Strategy and Operations. Um, I think Maria talks about working together. I heard Sarah also talk about um, the UK has to work with others globally. Um, and I can see from what you're saying that collaboration and partnership is, is extremely critical here. And I was wondering what sort of role you have to play in terms of that partnership and collaboration, in terms of bringing organisations together to actually achieve decarbonisation. Okay, great. We'll take one from Sam as well. Thanks. Um, that was really great. I'm interested in this point around how, in the UK and globally, we regulate for uncertainty in risk profiles and whether the UK's traditional way of regulating, which tends to be more like touch, less strict standards than perhaps in Europe, is well suited to managing that uncertainty or a bit of a barrier, particularly thinking about the green taxonomy. So we just have the EU. Things are very much in or out. In the UK how that's going to work under the UK regulatory regime. Um, so, yeah, any, any more thoughts on that would be great. Brilliant. I'm going to come down my panel on, on both of those questions because I think there's bits that you'd all like to pick up on. And just to sort of throw an extra one on top of Sam's last point there about the, the taxonomy, we've got a question that's come in online because this has been quite a controversial point with the EU's approach to taxonomy and the inclusion of natural gas in there as a sort of green investment and people asking online all of these people are anonymous i'm afraid so i can't tell you <laughs> who they are um, but they're asking should the uk include uh, uh, natural gas and nuclear in its own taxonomy um anthony if you want to pick up on any of those questions yeah i mean the i mean, the collaboration point i think is really probably for other uh, people on the panel but the but clearly it does require collaboration um 
regu- about the UK regulation, you're right. We tend to be historically we've been a bit more principles based and less uh, rules based. Uh, although you know, with international services regulation, the wholesale side, it's all EU regulations incorporated in UK law now, so it is all rules based now. I think on something like the green taxonomy, I can't see how you can get away from being very rules based on it. I mean, you can state the principles, they're, they're clear, but it's like, you know, exactly, you know, what is sustainable, isn't sustainable. I think you've got to get quite granular. And that's what I said about the, the devil is in the detail and how you measure stuff, the data. So the companies that I've talked to about it all, it's all very practical, pragmatic thing. Like, how do you actually get the data? How do you verify the data? And that's, and that's uh, you know, so just principles that, that are tested in courts of law, I don't think will cut it. Um, the uh, the the final question about the on the green taxonomy uh, and whether you to include gas or nuclear. So I, I'm quite a fan of nuclear power. I have to say it, it's um, I think it has been a historic uh, uh, wrong turn in the environment movement to to oppose it. I think it's it's obviously it's pretty much zero carbon and it's one of the safest uh, forms of power. I've been to Chernobyl Village. I've been. I mean, it's that's a long argument but anyway I think nuclear should definitely be in there it's about getting to net zero and it's uh, uh, lots of countries have nuclear power and are developing it uh, in terms of gas um, I mean there is gas is part of the transition to net zero we're not going to stop using gas tomorrow uh, we, we're going to need it as other forms of energy come on on stream like not just nuclear but inclu- including you know other renewables and other storage capacity because renewables don't work very well when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow there's a whole way we've got to redesign the um, energy system that's going to be you know take a lot of work uh, and there will be some residual use for gas and oil in certain sectors like chemicals or whatever else so uh, I don't want to see gas in there, but if it can be put in there as a as a sort of as on a strictly transitional basis, then I, uh, you know, I'll be open to looking at that. Collaboration is absolutely essential, and it's multi-dimensional. It's private sector and public sector. It's domestic and international. And it is finance and the real economy. And unless we get collaboration on all of those dimensions, we are going to fail. The sorts of things we've been doing uh, include setting up this Climate Financial Risk Forum, where we have um, uh, representatives of the regulators alongside uh, the larger, some of the representatives from banks, insurers, asset managers. And we look to put out guidance and examples of best practice so that everybody can get up the learning curve quickly. Uh, We've, as I said, been working internationally through the Central Bank and Supervisors Network for the Greening of the Financial System so that all of the work that we do domestically here in the UK is then exportable to other countries and indeed we gain from their knowledge as, as well. Again, getting us up that learning curve quickly. And then the third area is between the finance uh, system, financial system and the real economy. And our climate bears, our, our climate scenario analysis was designed to drive engagement between banks and insurers and their corporates to help get them on the journey. The largest corporates are all over this. The smaller corporates, the SMEs are not, and the financial system has got a really important role to play. So collaboration, absolutely uh, agree with that. Uh, I can see some value in a principles-based system here because 
None of us know how to manage climate-related financial risk, right? This is new. It's unprecedented. So starting with high-level principles and then being able to expand into detailed regulatory requirements over time as we discover what good looks like, I think, is a good thing rather than reaching for the details straight away. Because if we reach for the details straight away on the supervisory side, we may get that uh, wrong. Of course, Anthony's right that when it comes to taxonomies, you, you're either in or you're out in a in a green taxonomy, and that brings all sorts of challenges uh, with it. The one thing I would say is if we can have a variety of taxonomies for a variety of purposes that would help, right? Because some people want to invest in what is currently green, and that is fine, and you need a label saying this is green now. Other people want to put their savings to work to push those high emitters on a pathway to net zero. You need a transition taxonomy for that. And if we can differentiate between the currently green and have got a plan to be green, I think that would help. So two taxonomies, no, not too many more. Gas in the transition one and not in the final one. Exactly. Yeah, yeah no, that, that, that makes sense. Because I think one of, we've, we've sort of talked about this problem of competing sets of standards. So as That's long as right. we don't end up with a taxonomy of taxonomies. <laughs> um, I just wanted to pick up on that point before coming to Maria and Quangy. Um, on the extent to which it, it sort of makes sense for the UK to follow what's happening in other jurisdictions. You know, we've got the EU on our doorstep and they're sort of taking action in this area around taxonomy but all the other issues. I mean, do you think it sort of makes sense for us to sort of carve our own path or actually to stick quite closely to what... So so I think what's really important is that global businesses understand how each of the regulatory uh, perspectives fit together. That doesn't mean you have to do exactly the same thing, but you have to be interoperable, Mm. that you have to understand how what the UK is doing sits alongside what other regulators uh, are are doing. So I can see see some value in doing what suits the UK, but also I recognise the challenge of global businesses that need to operate in many uh, jurisdictions. I think the one thing I would finally add is that Climate policy is inherently national. The transition in the UK will have different dimensions to the transition in Europe and the transition in in the US. And I think our regulatory approach for finance has got to recognise that. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Maria, I wonder if you want to come in on the point around collaboration between businesses. Yeah. Well, yes, thank you. Well, first of all, um, again, from Sarah, the, the, you mentioned, and, and apologies if I don't pronounce it well, interoperability. 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 Yeah. So the interoperability is, is, is what we, um, we really are fed on because uh, we, we work on many different jurisdictions and for, for us it's something that we continue to advocate. It's extremely important to have a level of communality, some common framework, but it is true that then climate and climate policy has to be very uh, um, linked to the territory. And then we see it as well in all the other territories where, where, where we operate, when we talk to corporates, why would they need to maybe be so much ahead of the, of the curve if the government is not? So there is also this type of influence that we are, we are giving. 
um, and is, is extremely important. The, the second element on collaboration, uh, yes, it is a new industry. We are all uh, under a very steep learning curve and it is extremely, extremely important to collaborate and to see all different point of views. And uh, I think uh, for us, uh, banks and uh, um, financial institutions, uh, um, working on this all together and uh, defining what the challenges, what the opportunities are, uh, was uh, the, the, the best way to really be able to then implement it quite quickly. Um, uh, we mentioned the G funds, uh, where all the different f- um, type of financial institutions would group um, uh, and, and really look at the um, how uh, uh, insurance uh, banks, uh, asset managers, asset owners, uh, now private equity, even consultants um, are uh, um, are facing um, uh, um, net zero. And, and then practically, what would be the references? What would be the measurements? So there is a lot, a lot of work that is done collaboratively uh, to give us this infrastructure that then can help also corporates and, and players who are smaller and do not have the means to, to set up their own, their own thinking. So there is that element of collaboration and influence um, that, that we, we have. Um, and one final thing um, I, I, I wanted to say is that, um, yes, we are those who um, um, are reporting to the Bank of England. And uh, uh, when we, do, we did our uh, climate scenario, so we have seen the challenges and we have applied it to our own business. The next step is to talk to the to corporates. And the next step is to say, for me to go through this transition, I uh, and to retain you as a client and to continue collaborating with you, we need to go together. So that's a, the other type of collaboration that is extremely, extremely important. Final point I want to make is on uh, um, Europe and, and taxonomy. I, I totally agree that uh, um, you know that we, we do face uh, some sort some regulatory framework in Europe that is extremely prescriptive and. Um, and not principle-based, but there is also a need to clarify. There is a need to avoid the famous greenwashing. There is a need to potentially try to put an order because uh, this field, uh, uh, you know, like a young child is is everything and, 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 and more. Um, and maybe the ICC now find themselves in a better position because the order has been sort of uh, uh, found already. And so they pick the best of it and they start from the corporates and giving them a framework instead of maybe starting from the financial institution and wanting data that it wasn't yet there. Brilliant. Thank you, Maria. Uh, Kwangi, I wonder if you want to come in on this point, I mean, particularly around collaboration and how to sort of further that, because I think you'd have some interesting reflections there. If you wanted to pick up on the taxonomy point as well, but if that's not too much, I'm going to throw another question at you as well. We have one from Emmeline. Thank you, Emmeline, for submitting your name as well. That's very good. Um, Head of Sustainability at the ACCA. And she asked, what is the role of finance teams and accountants in green finance? Where, Where do you start with that? Okay. I think I'll try to address the sort of two questions in one answer. Um, so in terms of international collaboration point, I think, you know, in terms of the goal shared by policymakers, you know, firms, regulators across 
across countries, really, we're trying to essentially foster an environment where we can decouple economic growth with emissions growth. And then that has a lot to balance between oversized stability, innovation, national context, etc. It's, it's a very fine and complicated um, sort of um, thinking process. So, um, so I'm, I'm into that and I actually think, you know, outcome-based, principle-based sort of a regulatory framework really, you know, facilitate that kind of agility and flexibility. And, and also the second thing I would say is there actually are a lot of international collaborations already going on. You know, Sarah mentioned NGFS, Network of Greening Financial System, in having that common view of pathways across central banks. And out of COP26, we have the International you know, Sustainability Standards Board, which is about a, driving a co- global coherence in sustainability accounting on, and bring it on par with financial accounting. So I think those are, there are a lot of um, significant progresses that can be almost seismic if we kind of embed them properly. And I guess the third consideration I have, maybe not so much about taxonomy, but all kind of regulatory and policy consideration is that international and cross and private public sector collaboration is really key to understand and to align um, a policy thinking with how you know, banks or firms actually operate. So when we have disclosure requirement, product label, taxonomy, etc., aligning that with how funds are actually constructed, for example, uh, is, is, is going to be really important. And then to the finance and accounting question, I'm not a chartered accountant, so I wouldn't want to, you know, mislead people. But uh, I, I would say there are, I would just call out the international, the ISB work mm-hmm. and the, the global effort in bringing standards for gl- greater cohesion. So it's easier for countries, for companies across the, across the world to kind of operate on, a, on the same sort of level field, as it were. Can I add one thing to uh, that? One thing that we did in the Bank of England was apply TCFD to ourselves. We are, uh, as well as being a policy-making institution, we're a corporate and we're a bank with a balance sheet. And what we did was take those disclosure standards and apply them and then publish them. And we have done two so far. We're in the process of putting our third disclosure together. And it improves with time, right? Your first is okay, your second is getting good and your third will be uh, brilliant. So if there's one thing I would encourage accountants to do is lean in, have a go and accept that your disclosures will improve with time. Mm. Don't wait for perfection. Have a go now. Better to be really right now, not precisely right when it's too late. I'd like to stress this point because for corporate, it's also extremely important to know this, that there is this forward-looking approach on the TCFD. I think the brilliance of the TCFD is exactly that. It's just four pillars, 11 questions. You can can have a little table, uh, but it it is in in taking the commitment and going up uh, internally to your internal stakeholder, um, being advocate um, from wherever you sit. Mm. Um, you know, in most of uh, situation, sometimes there is it's not a, 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 a top-down exercise. It's really a bottom-up exercise that you need you need to to do. And the moment you do it, you will see that uh, doors start opening. Yes, there is an awareness that is start sinking in and taking place in all the different functions. Yep to get to the strategy. So um, I, I always say to our clients, you know, let's start because it gives you discipline. It gives you, okay, orientation. 
And then, yes, the first is okay, the second is good, and the third is perfect. That's really interesting reflection on the sort of interaction between rules and, and capabilities and, and how you drive change in organisations. I'm going to take another question from the room. I had one from the lady in the red jacket, um, and then I'm going to bring in another one from online as well. Um, hello, I'm Sakina Sheikh. Um, I'm a member of the London Assembly. Uh, thank you to the Institute of Government for putting on such a fantastic event, and it's been really great to hear from the panel today. Uh, my question is about the role of, uh, or the future, rather, of renewable energy infrastructure in the UK and the role of finance in that, and particularly the balance between the role of private finance and state ownership. Um, and I wanted to get the views from the panel on this. So, for instance, offshore wind in the UK, um, I think almost 50%, well, firstly, the capacity for offshore wind, I think, is uh, ahead of most of our colleagues in the EU. Um, But at present, if I understand correctly, at least 50% of it is owned by either EU companies or EU states. Uh, So the UK's investment and ownership, the UK states, rather, of our offshore wind, um, I would say is really falling behind. And I think, uh, you know, on my role in the Assembly, when I've spoken to the the mayor of the deputy mayor's teams around this, there is... uh, you know, a kind of partnership negotiation at all times on sort of the balance between public and private ownership of that. And I think one question I always put back to them is how do we ensure uh, that we get enough meat on the table, um, you know, as someone who's invested in state ownership as a member of sort of regional governance? Um, so I kind of wanted to get the uh, yeah, panel's views on that. What does a good partnership look like? What does that balance look like? Um, what do you think the priority for government should be in terms of yeah, what, what we bring to that table when we develop those partnerships, particularly for renewable infrastructure. Thank you. Brilliant, thank you. Any, any more questions in the room? Okay, uh, yeah, down the front, Jasmine. Hello, thank you. Jasmine Demand from Accenture. And mine was more around um, scientists. So we saw the use of scientists and the elevation of their voice during the pandemic on really guiding um, our decisions. And I wondered across kind of government, regulators, finance and business, how we should be embedding more climate scientists um, and are we using enough of them already to avoid things like greenwashing and transparency? Brilliant, thank you. Uh, Anthony, I might start with you on, on that first question as a, the politician in the, on the panel. Um, to offer yeah. I mean, it's a really interesting point around renewables and, and the extent to which they are financed from the UK or, or abroad. Yeah, so I, I'm entirely pragmatic on this issue, actually. It's, it, for me, it's about what works. And actually, if other, uh, if, if other governments want to invest in uh, renew, uh, offshore wind in the UK, then that's, that's fine. Uh, you know, I... I uh, you clearly need. I think there's a volume thing that you need private finance in there, just because it would be such a burden to the to the UK state to fund it all. So you definitely want uh, fi- um, you know private sector finance in there. But it's really things like the so the, the offshore wind was funded by contracts for differences. You know, there was a, that, so this comes back to the whole green finance thing again. If you've got the right economic model there, then people will invest in it, whether they're private investors or uh, foreign governments. And uh, the most important thing is to have that model, to have long-term sustainability, etc. And I, I can't really see that it matters that much. It's different when you've got assets where, which are uh, a question of national security, for example. So there's you know big question marks about uh, China's involvement in nuclear power, for example, which is you know a separate issue. Uh, and the government's obviously, particularly now, got. Uh, new uh, leg- new powers over uh, inward investment from foreign governments on in critical national security infrastructure, uh, but I'm not sure I'd include offshore wind power in that. So mm-hmm. if any, if people want to invest in it and it helps expand capacity, I'll be happy with that. And sci- the question on scientists. Uh, so I, I'm essentially a scientist by background. 
Uh, and so I, I very much like it when scientists uh, have more influence in policymaking. Uh, but having said that, I also recognise that uh, scientists do have a variety of different views, and that obviously came up in, in the whole pandemic, which you mentioned. I mean, there, there's, there's not just one single science that, you know, that comes down from on high, and that is the solution. Uh, but I think in terms of you know, combating greenwashing, it's got to be based on science. And to the extent there is scientific consensus on that, I think it's... Well, I, I hope it would be less contentious than the pandemic it's just in the pandemic there were so many unknown unknowns and you know we had no idea how the virus operated so hopefully the science will be more robust than in the pandemic brilliant and i'm going to come to sarah on that question but anthony just while i'm on you our most popular question which i feel compelled to ask uh, is on this question of greenwashing and, and legislation around it so so the question is do you think an esg definition should be legislated um, both to aid green finance and avoid greenwashing i mean we talked about this a bit already in terms of those two different tax so I, th- I think it's really important that greenwashing is a problem it's real it's a problem uh, it's very important that government and regulators combat it and uh, it not only undermines consumer confidence if it happens uh, but it also undermines the whole point of doing any of this anyway. I mean, if, we're, if it's, you know, if it's uh, just not true as it were, then it's, it's a complete waste of time. It won't help get to net zero. So it's really important we combat it. And yes, there's a role for regulation there. I think we don't have a representative of the FCA here, but they, yeah. I know the, F, the Financial Conduct Authority, they are uh, very concerned about greenwashing and doing work on it. You'd have to ask them about the detail of it, but they're very concerned about misrepresentation to retail consumers that some product is sustainable when in fact it's not and uh, I know the advertising standards authorities also looked at it has all been looking at it as well uh, so yeah no, there's a definite role there. Sarah I don't know if the bank takes a view on this interesting question of the balance of sort of UK versus uh, foreign investors. Absolutely not we're a taker of government climate policy <laughs> on uh, uh, that one uh, but we do very much recognise the important role of scientists in uh, in this. Indeed, we have designed some climate scenarios and in order to do those, we work with world-leading climate scientists. Uh, uh, those that work on the IPCC reports, we uh, we got them to be a part of our, uh, uh, our work as well. And we're seeing that more broadly across the financial system as well. I think it's a bit like with cyber. If you remember five years ago, everybody was starting to be worried about cyber, got technologists uh, involved in how they were running their business to ensure they were best prepared. Those same sorts of issues are happening now in terms of uh, climate science. And just on uh, greenwashing, I think the FCA are consulting as we speak on proposals on on that in order to make sure that we're not kidding ourselves, that we're doing what we need to here. Just before I come to Maria and Kwangi for final comments, Sarah, I wanted to pick up um, just one uh, interesting point around um, the... the, um, Oh, sorry, I've actually lost the, the question I was going to ask. <laughs> what was it? Um, I'll come on to, to uh, Maria and Kwangi, and then I'll come back to you if I, no problem. If I remember. Um, so, Maria, did you want to come in on that point around greenwashing? Um, yes, but maybe the scientists, I quite like the point of the scientists, if you don't mind, because I, obviously the IPCC is the reference. You know, the, this panel has been doing work for many years and so many um, scientists involved, but I think it's also um, linked to um, to 
education uh, and, um, and, and skills that now in our field are required. And uh, I believe that there is so more and more uh, 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 need to have scientists in the rooms. Um, and more we look not just on climate, you know, the, now we are introducing nature, the value of bio, biodiversity. There are some ethical questions as well that need to be answer um, in, in putting a price of those things. So um, I guess this, uh, um, it, it, it is very important. I mean, ideally, you would like to have a, a chief scientist as well as uh, the uh, chief sustainability officer, as chief scientist office, officer. Um, so I, I, do see, I do think that many um, um, that banks are becoming more scientific, if you like, in that respect. And uh, we see it also in our recruiting, in our learning programs as well. Brilliant. And Kwangi, I'll come to you in just one moment, but my mind blank yeah. has gone. It was uh, just from what you were saying there, I was, um, and, and we've had some comments online about this, but a reflection on the post sort of 2008 financial crash and the extent to which actually that's prepared us quite well. Because some of the interesting lessons that came out of that were around, you know, the financial sector being more open to other disciplines and sort of getting different types of thinking in. I mean, do you think, as you're sort of leading this work on, on the way central banks approach climate, do you think that's quite an interesting context? So I think there is a broader theme about diversity of thought and diversity of perspectives and making sure that cultures are inclusive so that all of those voices are, are heard. So I think it's the diversity, but I think it's inclusion as well. And indeed, we and the FCA jointly put some proposals out on, uh, on that for consultation last year. I do think it's important. Brilliant. And Kwangi, finish with you. Um, so, I mean, you pick up the, either Jasmine's question on science, but also I wonder if you could uh, continue your role and sort of leave us on a, a bit of an optimistic forward <laughs> uh, note and sort of tell us, you know, what are, the, what are the things you're looking out for in the next kind of, you know, six months or a year or so? Yeah, I'll try to put a positive spin on greenwashing. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think, but, but I do wanted to touch on the point, which is perhaps it's about, you know, greenwashing is about building trust among consumers consumers and also institutional investors in the financial system and about getting that decision useful information. And I think I, uh, you know, just to touch on FCA is doing a lot of work on that and receive a lot of uh, interesting responses to the consultation just to show the diversity of interest from all kinds of stakeholders in this topic. But um, I do think about, you know, once we have all the disclosure, we have all the information to build the trust, what next? So, you know, disclosure reporting, more information itself doesn't drive greater capital allocation. So it's, then it's about how you as a financial institution can find that information useful and usable. So I think there are two key things and then maybe data scientists play <laughs> into this role. So one thing is around when it comes to the ESG space, a lot of the data information, they're very open source. They're unstructured they're about locations, they're about climate patterns, etc. But the banks or most regulated financial institutions have a sanitized, regulated and structured environment. So how do you kind of ingest that kind of open data into a sort of disciplined pipeline is, is, a, is a key question to make that data usable. And then to make it useful is around once you have all this kind of great information driven by policy signals, regulatory guidance, then you know, it, it needs to be used by retail banking, commercial bank, all the business lines so that they can launch new products, so that you can, they can issue new financial instruments, you know, finance projects, etc. So then it requires sort of changes in the way banks, financial firms, 
operate their data, operate their operations and their culture so that ESG data actually become an asset, almost like a financial asset. So all the various business users can tap into and then translate that into something that benefits the net zero transition. So I guess that's my slightly positive note <laughs> from greenwashing to green finance. Very smoothly done. Thank you for that. Um, well, that's all we've got time for. Um, thank you very much to Accenture for, for sponsoring this event and all their support. Thanks to my brilliant panel uh, for all of their contributions. And thank you, of course, for coming in the room and for watching uh, at home. Um, Sorry, Jasmine, you're about to do a round of applause. but (laughs) We can do that. Um, We'll have a video uh, and a sound recording of the event online in about 24 hours for anyone who joined uh, late and would like to catch up. Um, And just to flag what else is going on at IFG, so we're we're pretty busy with a a programme of events at the moment. Tomorrow at 12.30, we've got Neil O'Brien and Sebastian Payne talking about levelling up. Uh, On Wednesday, we've got an event on taking back control of agriculture. Uh, Can the government deliver a Brexit dividend? And on Thursday, we've got the Chief of the Defence Staff, Admiral Satoni Radikin, and David Williams, Permsec at MOD, in conversation on the future of UK defence. So all sorts of issues coming up. But thank you very much for joining. Have a good afternoon. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Thank you.